Hello, everyone. You're listening to Policy Speaking, a podcast by the Public Policy Forum focused on moving beyond the crisis. As is the new norm, things are shifting nearly every hour. We spoke with David Dodge today at 10 a.m. He brought up some key points on the Canada Emergency Response Benefit and how it could be expanded to support cash flow during this period. About an hour later, the Government of Canada announced a 75% wage subsidy. So there you go. Today, I'm joined by David Dodge. David is one of Canada's great economists and has all kinds of experience uh, relevant to the situation we all find ourselves in today. He's been a professor and a public servant most of his life, including serving as Deputy Minister of Finance to both Conservative and Liberal governments, Deputy Minister of Health when Canada set up its National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg, and Governor of the Bank of Canada for seven years. David is currently a senior advisor at Bennett Jones LLP, one of Canada's leading law firms, where he is counsel on all things economic and is regularly sought out for his economic advice. And today we're all seeking out his counsel as we try to make sense of a set of health and economic circumstances unprecedented in modern times. Welcome to Policy Speaking, David. Good to be with you. Okay, so let's start with uh, how this economic crisis compares with other shocks you've seen such as 9-11 and the 2008 financial crisis. How, how is this one different in economic terms? Well, this started as a supply shock, i.e. something in the real economy, not something in the financial economy, as was the case in 2008. And so that makes it very different. We've had an interruption of supply, either uh, because China shut down and stuff didn't come in, or now, of course, because we have, by policy, shut down our own economy. So that makes it very different than what we experienced in 2008, where the problem at that time was that we just didn't have sufficient demand because uh, people's people were being foreclosed on their mortgages, uh, and so on. So it's it is very different this time around. So so I mean, is it a supply shock and a demand shock that are coexisting with one another? Yes, absolutely. It starts as a supply shock and actually continues as a supply shock, but that induces in and of itself a demand a demand shock. But what is important, I think, to understand is that this time we are restricting the amount of output that the economy can actually deliver. And so we can deliver dollars in one way or another to people, either through extended credit or through government uh, cash subsidies in one way or another. But if we're not producing the goods and services to go along with that, then it's very hard for the economy actually to recover. And what we risk down the line is if we put in a lot of cash and no goods, uh, then we simply uh, end with inflation. Okay, so I want to come back to down the line in a, in, in a couple of minutes, but uh, let's actually move backwards for half a second. Is there is there an historical precedent here? Uh, uh, are there, do we have experience dealing with this kind of situation? Well, not not exactly the same, obviously. But this, this is the sort of sort of situation where 
where we get uh, a, a major disruption uh, in the real side of the economy. We have had that before. Of course, if you think back to the oil price shock uh, over the early 1970s, which dramatically changed uh, the way the economy operated, dramatically took, uh, because of the change in oil prices, took uh, some uh, capital uh, uh, out of being viable. And, and we struggled. We struggled, you recall, Ed, right through uh, the 1970s with adjusting to that particular shock. But yes, we've had these sorts of shocks before, not the same as this one. Okay, so one of the things about this one, I mean, uh, you know, bank economists uh, um, have now again marked down their uh, their expectations. Uh, I guess I used to call it for growth, but let's say they've marked up their expectations for, you know, for the economy to shrink. Uh, but they also uh, think that it will come back; it will bounce back quickly. And you know, one of your ex-colleagues, the uh, former uh, Fed chairman Ben Bernanke, you know, recently was quoted saying, "This is more of a snowstorm or a natural disaster than a normal recession or Great Depression." And the implication also was that it would, you know, it would bounce back quickly; we'd get over the uh, uh, the snowstorm uh, quickly. How do you um, how do you see that? How would you assess that? Uh, well, first of all, I don't think we know how quickly we'll get get over the snowstorm, and it's going to depend on a number of things. First of all, um, it, it's going to depend on whether we can uh, selectively and reasonably quickly uh, ramp up production and re- putting people back uh, to work, and that's going to depend on our ability to test people. And it's going to be uh, depend on our ability to track people and our ability to provide people that are back at work with reasonable uh, personal protective equipment. If indeed we can do that and we somehow manage to get through the eight or nine or 12 weeks or whatever it's going to be of universal suppression, which is our current tool, uh, then indeed it'll come back. Uh, How quickly is going to depend on how effective uh, those tests are and that provision of uh, degree of assurance for people that are going back to work. So if uh, if I'm understanding this right, then um, while economic programs, as we're seeing, might be a bridge to uh, the other side, if you will, to the reignition system for the economy, if I could put it that way, is really health policy. Is that right? The, 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 what will allow the economy to reignite are the policies that allow us to continue to provide a reasonable degree of assurance that we are not going to uh, create another spike in uh, coronavirus transmission. And that we can only do if we have uh, cheap, quick tests available, if we can protect workers that are going back to work in a reasonable way, and if we have ability to track so that we can isolate um, emerging hotspots quickly and so be able to contain the number of serious cases that the health system has to deal with. Okay, so 
let's let's go back to the bridge uh, for a moment that uh, that governments have uh, have been building. What what do you think of the measures that you've seen so far? Well, I, I think we are we are moving with all available tools. We had further uh, tools uh, deployed by the Bank of Canada this morning in terms of of uh, for the first time purchase, uh, outright purchase of government bonds that are going to be retained on the bank's balance sheet. Uh, that is new. We've used all the other uh, tools. The bank has employed all the other tools that were available before and indeed uh, modified that and, uh, on, and added. On the government side, we're in the process of uh, developing ways uh, to bridge businesses uh, through uh, loan guarantees, either through EDC, through BDC, or other mechanisms that are being developed. Um, so those bridge mechanisms for businesses, I think, uh, are being put in place. It, it's very hard, but uh, it's being done. And then on the on the uh, worker side, uh, we do have the new. Uh, program, the new uh, essentially universal program uh, that uh, has been put in place. I, I guess the one thing where where one would say it's that is not quite as complete as it might have been is that uh, in fact uh, we're not going to allow uh, that $2,000 a month uh, to be used for uh, workers that uh, are actually uh, continuing uh, on the payroll, uh, so that we, we wouldn't we wouldn't provide that money to allow firms to actually uh, reduce their uh, their uh, salaries uh, by that two thousand dollars a month and keep them working. So, you know, we are feeling our way uh, through this. We've taken steps that have got us started, and the government clearly uh, is open to further steps. So, w- would would you think that we maybe should be looking at that two thousand dollars as uh, as more of a universal basic income? Well, it, it's de facto the de facto has become that for uh, for most people. For for many workers, it's it's certainly better than the UI payments uh, that they would. Uh, uh, employment insurance payments that they would otherwise get. The real issue is what is it that will do best to allow them to stay on firms' payrolls so that indeed businesses can gear back up very quickly, that the workers are there, that they don't have to, uh, they don't have to be laid off, but can stay on the payroll. And indeed, uh, can those can stay on the payroll with part of their salary, that $2,000 a month uh, actually being paid by government, which is, I think, uh, the way that a number of European countries uh, have implemented the program. Okay. Now, um, it seems to me the Bank of Canada's work, uh, you know, reactions notwithstanding, which, as you say, are, you know, have been directed uh, a lot of businesses and, uh, and the financial system, uh, as, you know, as would be the case with the bank. Um, but, but a lot of this relief has, it seems to be directed 
uh, at citizens uh, rather than uh, rather than at, at business, as as was the case, let's say in two thousand eight, with the bailout of GM and uh, and pieces like that. Uh, is is there a bit of a different approach going on here? Uh, yes, and I think that for a very good reason uh, that we have moved much more quickly on the uh, support for workers' side than we did in two thousand and eight. And that's because of the nature of the problem. So, yes, I, I think it is different. Um, okay, one of the things I, I guess uh, I think some people are struggling, uh, as, as a lot of people struggle with arithmetic, so we will, we will um, go to you as a professor for help with the arithmetic here. But if the economists, the bank economists, are saying that they expect we're going to have perhaps 20% or 30% of a fall-off in the economy in the next quarter, um, but most of the economy, other than government, is uh, is turned off. Uh, how is it, in a sense, only 20? I know those are historically unprecedented numbers, but in a way, how is it only 20 or 30 percent? Well, I mean, A, we don't know uh, precisely how this is going to, to, uh, uh, to work its way through. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly more than government that's currently working. And it's very essential that more than government uh, continues to uh, to work through the period, but whether it's whether it's twenty five percent, whether it's thirty percent in the quarter, that is an enormous hole by by any standards of lost output. Uh, some of which will come back in the future uh, if you don't buy your new fridge today. Uh, you may well buy it six months or a year or. 18 months from now, but some of it is lost and gone forever. Uh, an airline flight that doesn't go today isn't available a year from now to go. And so if one looks at those sectors of the economy where, if you will, the output is lost and gone forever, those sectors constitute uh, something probably in the order of about 11% of the economy that those are the, the lost and gone ones. The other sectors uh, will at least partially uh, are continue to partially serve, uh, but now, now uh, continue to partially serve, but in the future uh, will come back to a degree. So that's why I think if you look at uh, the various forecasts, what you see is something for the year as a whole that looks like uh, something around a five to ten percent loss of output, on the assumption uh, that it's really the second quarter uh, that uh, things are totally restricted and that production resumes uh, sometime in the third and fourth quarters. Right, and that presumes that we actually the suppression strategies do work and that we don't have a second wave and uh, and issues uh, of that sort. Or that we can move to selective suppression, and I think that's really what the what we're aiming for, and that's why it's so critical that uh, in whatever way possible, we manage to ensure the supply of of uh, testing of of critical gear uh, and so on. That that really has to be the first effort 
those supply chains are absolutely critical and will require public support. Right. And then we get uh, we we know who can safely uh, get back in the community and uh, and who can't. And we get uh, those folks or, back to, at back least to get back with a, with a very low degree of risk. Right. So um, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of our discussion about, you know, possible long term effects. And uh, you mentioned inflation as a possibility. Uh, and of course, governments are going to be uh, in extraordinary debt. Uh, banks, uh, central banks, which have already had a lot of uh, uh, have changed big changes to their balance sheets uh, after the uh, financial crisis, uh, are going to have even even greater debt that they're carrying. So, how what does this look like? Even if we get through it, um, you know, how does the world look different then? Well, in, in a sense, we're going to have to absorb the real loss of output that we will have taken during the course of this year. And we're absorbing it in part right now. And we're going to absorb it in part by uh, reduced consumption in the future. I mean, that's, that's what the financial system is trying to do. Um, so that we're all working very hard right now, the government and financial institutions to preserve a well-functioning and continued functioning financial system. But that doesn't mean that there aren't losses. And some of those losses are on the equity side uh, and some on, of course, on the, on the bond side, in particular the high yield side. And that means that pension funds, uh, savings plans, indeed individuals own savings, in fact, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, are clearly going to deliver less uh, less income. That can be built back up over time, but uh, there is a loss there. And so, and government, of course, has taken on this additional debt. And so they too are going to have to look at reduced uh, payments in the future uh, or increased taxes, not, not to refill, uh, the whole necessarily, but to continue uh, to pay the interest on the borrowing that they've uh, undertaken. Yeah, on that point, you know, you were one of the architects of uh, of balancing the budget and you know managing through the uh, deficit crises in the in the nineteen uh, I guess late nineteen eighties, but particularly into the nineteen nineties and the famous nineteen ninety five budget. And one of the things I think that concerned people like you at that point was that uh, good spending, if I could put it that way, was being squeezed out by bad spending. You know, we were spending money paying interest on uh, uh, on on debt. Uh, and so will debt levels be returning up, you know, going back up there? Will we have lost, uh, in a sense, uh, all of uh, all of those gains? Well, we certainly will have lost quite a chunk of those gains. I think the, the difference, though, Ed, compared to then is that we actually had relatively high nominal rates of interest and, and real rates of interest at that point in time. And so government of Canada was having to spend over 30% of its tax revenue uh, just to service the debt. To the extent the government uh, borrows long at the moment and borrows at interest rates that are close to zero, then the interest payments extending on out in, in, into the future will not be uh, as, as burdensome as they were 
in the early 1990s. So I think we can afford, in that sense, to allow the uh, public debt to GDP ratio uh, to rise, hopefully not, not back to the uh, levels uh, that we had uh, in, in the early 90s. But uh, certainly, if we get back to those sorts of levels, the ongoing interest charges associated with that debt uh, will indeed be lower. Uh, and so I think, I, I don't think this is an impossible situation to manage in part, in part because we've done quite well, at least as the government of Canada, uh, since the mid 1990s and getting that uh, debt level down. The same is not true in all the provinces. And that's, that means that this time around, unlike 2008, 2009, it's going to ha have to be the federal government that bears uh, the burden of taking on extra debt. Right. And uh, some provinces, uh, uh, it might have to uh, help out as we go along. Well, th they will. But it, back in 2008, when you go back and look at what we did in 2008, 9, 10, uh, the provinces played a huge role in taking on additional obligations. Okay, I just want to take one uh, one second to look south of the border because obviously the United States uh, uh, exports uh, uh, its uh, has exported a strong economy for many years and exports its mistakes as well. So, how concerned are you about the management of the uh, of the crisis uh, in the United States and and both for Americans, but also for uh, for the uh, shocks that that causes in other parts of the world. Well, let me start with the Federal Reserve. I think the Federal Reserve has been doing uh, doing a excellent job uh, in difficult circumstance, and that is enormously important uh, for the whole world uh, because we all rely, in the end, on the U.S. financial system to to. Uh, finance all of our cross-border uh, operations. So uh, I would say that on that side, I think one can have pretty good confidence uh, on what the Fed is doing. On the government side, it's clearly more difficult to ascertain. Uh, and whether, whether the strategy that I had talked about of ramping up very quickly the ability to supply those critical goods uh, and services to allow the economy to get back to operation. Whether that is being done adequately, I think it, it is a question, but I'm not really competent to comment on that in detail. Okay, good. Uh, well, not good, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but candid, and I appreciate that. Um, Last thing is I want to I kind of want to bring it home and make it very personal. So you know you've been in the eye of uh, of crises. Um, what does it feel like to be a policymaker at times like this? Well, you're scrambling. You're right at the coal face, uh, and you've got to think about what to do to get through the next week, the next month, uh, all the time. And so you tend to put the longer term considerations, I won't say on the back burner, but 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 those are not the ones that that you're dealing with first. 
And so I think I think the the key thing for for governments, federal and provincial, is to continue to think hard about, if you will, the exit strategy, uh, how we're going to work through uh, the the next eighteen months at least, and then uh, at least have some people uh, thinking hard about the longer run, uh, the longer run implications. Uh, my sense is that, that that is what is actually is actually going on. And um, I, I, I think it, one should have a reasonable confidence in, uh, in the folks that both both on the political and the, and the public service side uh, that are trying to uh, trying to deal with it. And but let me finish by saying that this is a, a collective social effort. Uh, governments have a role to play. Business has a role to play. But we as citizens, individual citizens, have a very important role to play. And I think right at the moment, as individual citizens, our most important role is uh, to is to practice the social distancing measures, uh, to stay calm, to not uh, panic that uh, somehow the financial system is going to break down. It's not going to break down, and uh, and, and to to work our way through. It's going to require a high degree of solidarity of of collective discipline uh, as we work through this period is doable, but all of us have a role to play. And it's not just over to government. It's uh, all of us in society, individuals, households, uh, third party uh, groups, and uh, such as yours, uh, and, and businesses. We're all in the same boat together. Yeah, I've got to say that I I, um, uh, I read a lot uh, of analogies, and I don't think they're inappropriate about the Second World War. But if we're going to focus on the Second World War, then it feels like Battle of Britain time, you know, exactly. pulled together. Exactly. Okay, David, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. I think you've always been a teacher at heart and uh, someone attracted to the great unknowns, the ones that we need to uh, learn about really quickly. And, you know, I appreciate you uh, imparting and uh, that wisdom and sharing it uh, uh, with us here on Policy Speaking. Well, I'm not sure it's very wise, Ed, but thank you very much and good luck with Policy Speaking. I'm Edward Greenspond on behalf of the Public Policy Forum, and this has been Policy Speaking.